We grow when we give. We grow when we give. We grow when we give. Nosotros crecemos cuando damos. We grow when we give. We grow when we give. Welcome to ROG, Return on Generosity. I'm your host, Shannon Cassidy. This podcast celebrates generosity at work, not financial giving. Giving valuable time, mutual respect, alternative perspectives, and genuine collaboration. Our special guest today is Hannah Wunsch, a critical care doctor, professor, and vice chair of research in the Department of Anesthesiology at Weill Cornell Medicine. Born in Boston and raised in Cambridge, Massachusetts, Hannah attended Harvard College, graduating with a BA in biology. She attended Washington University School of Medicine and received a master's degree in epidemiology from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. She has completed an anesthesia residency and critical care fellowship at Columbia University, where she was on the faculty. Hannah is the author of the book, The Autumn Ghost, How the Battle Against a Polio Epidemic Revolutionized Modern Medical Care. Her writings have also appeared in many esteemed journals. And what I appreciate most about you, Hannah, is your compassion. Reading your written words and hearing your delivery is as compassionate as it is informative. Welcome to ROG, Hannah. Oh, thank you so much. I'm really pleased to be here. And uh, and thank you for those those words and that feedback on, on the book. I, I appreciate that because uh, I really cared about making sure it, it was compassionate in the telling and not just sort of medical doctorese in the way it was describing things. Yes. And I've also had the opportunity to, to see you speak online, and I'll include those in the show notes because it's really a compelling story, some of which will cover today, but it's it's more than we'll be able to cover in this short podcast. So just give us a little bit of your background, Hannah, if you don't mind. Uh, well, you know, as you mentioned, I, I trained in medicine and um, I always had an interest in writing. I come from a family with a lot of writers in it as well. And um, people will come to my house and sort of marvel at the number of books on my shelves. And uh, uh-huh. so, you know, I, I really, I do a lot of research. Uh, I love the research I do, which is about sort of care critically ill patients, how they do in the ICU and then afterwards. But I always kind of had this itch, this urge to tell this story about my specialty, which is what the book is about, of course. And um, it took a long time for me to get there because I was distracted by caring for patients and doing research and day-to-day work. And it was really only after sort of coming to a point where I really needed a, a change. And I thought about stepping away and doing a sabbatical year and thought, what would I do for a sabbatical year? You know, would I just keep doing research? Would I do something else? And it all kind of came together that there was this part of me that felt untapped, which was about being a writer. And so um, that's that's the journey I went on uh, in writing this book was sort of exploring that and getting the opportunity to do something very different from my day-to-day job. And isn't that so true that we get these pangs of, I don't know, call it a nudge or something in our spirit tells us like we need to do this thing. I'm sure medicine was a calling like that for you. And now this authorship and saying, I need to, and and this story, you really wanted to write this story. Like what, what were some of those pangs for you, Hannah? So the story I, I wrote is really an origin story for the, my specialty, critical care medicine. And it's an extraordinary story. And it just, I, had, I learned about it 20 years ago, uh, reading a short chapter in a book, and it had just stayed with me. And 
every time I was in the ICU taking care of patients, I would think about this story and what people had done 70 years ago that really made a difference to the care that I and everybody else provides now. That was the dr- the real driver. And then I think that the kind of need to step away was for me also about just needing a break from the day-to-day. And I, I've become a huge advocate for sabbaticals for all. <laughs> Make a lot of department chairs and, and bosses very upset when I say that. Um, but I do think that, you know, we, modern life is, is exhausting. And one thing that we all need is that opportunity to, to step away and recharge a little bit. Um, and speaking of generosity, I feel very grateful to my colleagues because, of course, to take any time away to do something like write a book is to have a lot of generosity from other people to help you do that. Mm-hmm. Right, that encouragement and the the t- the space to do it, right? So they covered for you, and they yeah, yeah. probably also just really were compelled to see what you were going to write about. Yeah, they were excited. They they wanted to to read the book as well, so that was a good sign. <laughs> so I just want to share a little bit of the connective thread about how we know each other. So I'm taking a several steps back in my history, where my college professor, Dr. Agnes Duty, became a very dear friend and a mentor. And she was a Rotarian for years. And then when I started my business in 2000, she really encouraged me to join the Rotary, which I did. I, I joined for many years. And the mission of the, ro- the, the Rotary is to eradicate polio. So that, that was our mission from the beginning and everything that we did, the fundraising. So Agnes, who has recently left us, had a beloved family member named Heidi Kuma. And Heidi introduced me to you, Hannah, and your book, and your book, The Autumn Ghost, is about the polio epidemic in Copenhagen and bears many lessons for COVID and, like you said, ICU and medical practices as they are today. So it's just wonderful to be able to connect with someone who has this, I don't know, there's, I think, a lot of different serendipity connections for us. Yeah, yeah. I've actually had the opportunity to speak to a lot of Rotarians. And uh, I think the work they're doing is phenomenal because the effort to eradicate polio is obviously ongoing. You know, I think in, in North America, we kind of take for granted that we don't have to think very much about polio now, but it is still out there. It is a can still a contemporary issue. And um, the enormous worldwide efforts of the Rotary Club and Rotary International are, are really amazing. So I didn't actually know that Rotary connection. And that, that's really cool that you have. Yeah, that. and it was really because of Agnes. Yeah. And and it was so fulfilling. And I, and I remember thinking, gosh, that's a really lofty goal. Um, and then I've just recently researched, you know, after having met you, I've researched like the, the status of polio research and funding and the um, solutions for it. So I think you'll speak more about that. But this book is about medical history, really. Um, and I just want to hear your thoughts around what makes it important for today's readers. Like, how is it relevant to people today? Yeah, well, I always start by saying it's a good story. And I think that uh, the first most important thing is that um, we know we need good stories in the world. And and I wanted to share something that ultimately actually is a happy and uplifting story as well. And, and we also need that in the world right now. So that that's the first part. Uh, and, and that was important to me, actually, that I really wanted to make sure that it was engaging and, and just, we also love origin stories as humans. I think we sort of have this need to understand where things came from and start and this is very much 
an origin story for an entire specialty in medicine and critical care. Um, but, you know, beyond that, I think that, uh, it, you know, there's a lot about feeling gratitude for what we have now. And by going back and seeing where we came from and what it was like to receive care 70, 80 years ago and to see how far we've come really does make one stop and appreciate what, you know, what we take for granted a lot of the time, which is modern medical care. Um, and then finally, I think it's also really important to recognize how much we can learn from these past events. And that can be applied to our own lives, our own day-to-day. -day. And, and in this case, there's a lot about innovation and sort of what does it take for an innovation to occur that's really important. And so the book does sort of dissect that uh, and tell the story of this particular innovation. Mm, that's awesome. So what could you what can you allude for us about innovation? So it, it's fascinating because, of course, there's the parts of this particular innovation, which is a, a, an ability to uh, provide mechanical ventilation for people. That's the innovation. How do you keep people breathing who have severe polio, bulbar polio? And it all happens in this one epidemic. And the there's a lot of aspects of it that you actually wouldn't want to uh, emulate. <laughs> I think that's important or, or that you can't emulate. And, and those are things like there's a lot of coincidences that that are detailed in the story of the kind of right person being in the right place at the right time with the right expertise. And, and some of that we can try to um, create ourselves in, in a moment when we're interested in innovation. But some of that just uh, you know, kind of makes for fun reading because it's kind of amazing, these kind of random shipboard meetings and this person who happened to work here who happened to be studying this. So there's that piece. There's also the fact that there's a lot of experimentation, of course, in the early part of the 20th century that was pretty unregulated in a way that I think that we, you know, we, we don't feel is acceptable now that on the flip side does, did allow them to try things without having to check with anyone before they started. And I do think that we have to recognize that in some ways that does foster innovation, but it also has very sort of down, big downsides and, and dark sides. And so that's not the piece that's the kind of takeaway. But I think the piece that really is the takeaway is that the hero of my story is Bjorn Ibsen. He's an anesthesiologist who's a kind of young up and coming anesthesiologist in Copenhagen in a, a specialty that's literally only existed for one year in 1952. He, there's only five anesthesiologists in the entire city. And he's asked to come try to help figure out something to save these polio patients who are dying from bulbar polio in the infectious disease hospital in the city. And he walks in, he's never taken care of a polio patient in his life. And he has to stand up to the boss, the kind of head honcho in the hospital, who's very sort of scary to him. He's 20 years senior and he's a, a very experienced polio expert. And he also has to come in and convince these people that, that he has expertise that they need and that he has from doing other things, particularly working in the operating room. And to me, the real takeaway of the story that's relevant to innovation today is the willingness to hear other opinions, to bring in people with very different backgrounds and experiences that don't necessarily align with your tick box mm. list of what you think constitutes an expert in your area. And uh, on the side of the big, the big boss, the big honcho, this guy named Henry Lassen, who is sort of very scary, the willingness to listen to this person who doesn't tick any of his boxes in terms of what constitutes an expert 
in this area and recognize when this person is actually providing him with information that really can change the, his ability to care for these patients. And so it is it is the, the, the two sides of that, right? The sort of openness and, and also the, um, the courage to speak up, which Bjorn Ibsen has. And there is an interesting backstory to, I think, his ability to speak up, which is that he does, he, uh, although he'd done most of his training in Copenhagen, spent a year at the Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston to learn anesthesia he commented about how important a year that was for him in terms of seeing what he felt was a less hierarchical culture where he felt like he could speak up. And, um, you know, it's funny because I think a lot of us view American medicine as quite hierarchical, but apparently compared to what it was like in Europe, it really um, was more open and supportive of particularly of junior people. And so that was also an important piece that sort of having seen other systems and cultures um, as part of his training. So it, it what he, was his experience that it was less hierarchical in anesthesiology? Where he studied, or the reverse? I think so. So, in at Harvard in the United States, he felt that all of medicine, the entire medical culture, not just anesthesia, was less hierarchical than in Europe and, in particularly, in Denmark. So, he kind of gained courage from having had this exposure to being working in a place where his voice was heard, and he was able to take that back with him to Denmark, so that when he was called on, he was willing to speak up. He felt confident that he could say his piece, share his knowledge, and trust that uh, it would be accepted because it was clearly the right thing to do. But it was not a given um, because he was so junior and so inexperienced in some ways. So are stories like these shared more broadly so that individuals are empowered or encouraged to speak up and share their truth? I think there's been a lot of movement uh, in medicine in general, and even in what he considered the less hierarchical version of American medicine, but I think many of us still view as hierarchical. There really has been a recognition of the need to kind of flatten that. And certainly in the intensive care unit where I work, um, there's been a real emphasis on ensuring that everybody who's caring for a patient has a voice when we're rounding, when we're sort of doing our assessments of patients, that it's not just the senior doctor who's sort of, you know, barking orders and making decisions, and that uh, we recognize now that just for the day-to-day care even, that it's really important to have all those different viewpoints and opinions, that there's the nurse, there's the, there's the pharmacist, that there's the physical therapist, that there's the doctor, that there's all these people who all have different expertise that's important. So critical. So that's our hero, Bjorn. Tell us more about him. He speaks up and then what happens? Yeah, so he's brought in, he's got they've got dozens of patients dying from polio and specifically bulbar polio, which makes it difficult to swallow and cough. And so it's terrible. They were drowning in their own secretions. And he um, he proposes what's a very simple thing, which is a tracheostomy, a little tube into the lungs, and to blow air into the lungs to basically breathe for them. And you would think that this sounds so obvious, kind of why wasn't it done? There's a whole backstory to sort of the received wisdom about why patients were dying from polio. And, and in the crucial piece is that he he's not indoctrinated with this. And so he's able to look at them and say, well, we just need to breathe, help them to breathe more. And so he demonstrates this on one little girl uh, named Vivi Ebert on August 27th, 1952. And uh, he successfully basically resuscitates her from near death and is able to, with a, a bag of 
oxygen, essentially blowing air into her lungs, keep her alive and stable. And it's recognized that this works and they start to do it on every single patient who comes into the hospital who's having trouble breathing. Now there's the caveat here is that what we would do now is we'd just roll in a ventilator, hook them up to a machine that does this and walk away. But of course there were no ventilators in all of Denmark. And so they needed people to sit at the bedside and hand ventilate them 24 hours a day. And so to do that, they called on the medical students of Copenhagen to come participate in the care of these patients uh, at this hospital. And that part, I'll be honest, it always gives me chills even to think about it now after having <laughs> written about it and talked about it a lot. Oh my gosh, that's incredible. I'm just looking at the copyright on your book, Hannah, because it's 2023. So I can't even imagine you writing this book during the pandemic. I mean, talk to me about the universality of what you've discovered, this story that stood out for you in medical school, this research that you went through to understand how these individuals would keep someone else alive by blowing air into their lungs, literally breathing for them. And now we are going to, you know, transition to 2020 global pandemic. Ventilators are essential to keeping human beings alive. I just can't even imagine what it must have been like for you to have this kind of historical context and then experience something like that. What was extraordinary, of course, is when I first read this story of these patients sitting at the bedside without ventilators, hand ventilating these patients 24 hours a day, it seemed like something from the mists of time, right? I couldn't imagine what that must have been like. And then to your point, 2020 hit and all of a sudden we're talking about running out of ventilators. And, you know, my thought immediately was, oh my God, are we going to go back to 1952? Are we going to be sitting there bringing people in to hand ventilate these patients? And uh, I do, I did hear anecdotally some stories of short term that actually happening in certain places. I had actually conceived of writing the book and, and felt it was an important story to tell before COVID hit. I just felt like intensive care is always there in the background of, of medical care and we don't really talk about it. And I wanted to sort of show people how important it was and, and what we do for people every day. And of course that shifted all of a sudden, the entire world's talking about ventilators and you just think, wow, people need to understand where this comes from and the innovation that occurred to create this and how grateful we should all be for these events of 70 years ago because it is the mainstay of the care we are providing right now in COVID-19. And so it, it was an incredible time to be thinking about it and, and writing it and did feel make it feel more urgent to share this story with the world that people needed to appreciate what it was that had occurred 70 years ago. Yes, because you said it's all about innovation and really to, to think that ICUs, like intensive care unit, something that everybody is familiar with, hopefully haven't needed to, you know, go there regularly. But we are grateful that that exists for those emergencies and mechanical ventilation. Like to think that this goes all the way back. I mean, I think you're just sharing such a rich history and the way you do it. So like I said, with compassion and the depth of knowing these individuals, the backstory, the connection, that serendipity or that, you know, great, the right person at the right time. It's just, it's, it's just really um, eye-opening. And like you said, it's like these da daily things that we just take for granted. Right. And I, I was privileged to meet 
a lot of the patients from 1952. And I do share some of their stories in the book. And I, I felt that was incredibly important that this wasn't just about the kind of technical side and what the doctors that were doing, but that it was really about sharing the experience of what it was like for everybody involved, the medical students, the nurses, and the patients themselves. And and what's really extraordinary is they they know what they were part of. And they were really excited that I was going to be writing this book to share that with the world because they're quite proud of having been part of that. And many of them, of course, had a lot of changes in their lives because of the paralysis they were left with from polio. And I felt that that was also important to help people to remember what polio does to people to kind of come full circle to the beginning of our conversation about the need to eradicate polio. Absolutely. So the title, The Autumn Ghost, tell me about why you chose that as a title. Yeah, it's one of those phrases where, you know, once you've read it, you think, oh, that's it. That's the title. But the the, the background to that title is that um, polio was considered a pretty mysterious disease. We didn't really understand its transmission very well, but there were a couple of things that were known. So for instance, in the United States, it seemed to appear every summer. July and August is when it would peak. And it, a lot of people called it the summer plague. And if you talk to people who remember that time, they'll all talk about the swimming pools being closed and being kept in on sweltering days by their parents and all of that. But if you go to the Scandinavian countries, which are further north, and again, we don't fully understand why this is the case, but the epidemics tended to peak in the fall. So they would be sort of start in the summertime and then um, they would get worse in September and October. And so this particular epidemic I was writing about, it's already bad in the summertime. And so part of it was this, this desperation, this knowledge that it's only mid-August and we're in a country where polio peaks in October. And so this is just going to become catastrophic. And a writer back in the 1940s in Sweden had actually described it as the autumn ghost for this reason that it would sort of creep in in the summertime. And so it just felt that it really kind of captured the fear, of course, of this disease and also that this was sort of a... Uh, a desperate situation facing the autumn months and what was going to come. Oh, thank you for that. It really does make sense uh, with that context. And I think it's just like a curiosity gap too of like, oh, what is that all about? <laughs> right? Yeah, I wanted to make it, you know, one of those things where it was a little mysterious and, and not uh, a kind of title that was catchy, but not too forthright in a sense so that you kind of had a yes, little bit of mystery. Yeah, you know, you're respecting your reader and their own intelligence and ability to connect the dots. What are some of the ways that you see the things that you've written about, the things you know about really mirroring some of current events? Yeah, so, I mean, I think the first actually goes to the title, Return on Generosity, that for the medical students who the ones who sat at the bedside 24 hours a day, they did six to eight hour shifts day after day and night after night. And, you know, their hands would cramp. They would get like a 10 minute cigarette break every hour and a bit more to eat. But fundamentally, they jettisoned their studies. So they took time out of medical school. They um, jettisoned often jobs they had to pay the rent. And they risked their lives because polio was tra a transmissible disease and they didn't know whether they could catch it sitting there with a patient who had acute polio. And yet, the call came that they were needed and they came first in the dozens, then in the hundreds and ultimately 1,200 
medical and dental students participate in the care of these patients. At one point, they had 70 patients who were being hand ventilated by the students. And I just, you know, I think it is important to reflect on that generosity. And of course, we saw that same generosity in COVID with so many healthcare workers and other frontline workers just getting up every morning and going in despite the risks, despite the fear. Uh, And so there's enormous parallels with what people have done uh, most recently. And I think is also just an inspiration to us that, um, that, you know, throughout medical history, people have always rolled up their sleeves and and helped out. Um, But there was also a return for the students as well. And I think that's important to recognize. For many of them, this was just a turning point in their experiences, in their training. Uh, So many of them became anesthesiologists because of this incredible experience taking care of patients and ventilating them and supporting them. Um, All of them really spoke to just how it became this key moment that they remembered forever. Um, They became friends with a lot of the patients they took care of. One of the medical students I met named her daughter after one of the patients she cared for. And so there really was a return for them as well. And it it was important uh, to recognize that providing that care um, also gave back Mm. to them. And in all of this research you've been doing, Hannah, and yourself as a medical professional and somebody who educates others, what what do you think is the drive? What what would be a, a reason why somebody would make such a sacrificial investment in another human being? And, and this is in a very literal sense, like you have someone else's life in your hands. And then there's in other ways in which I think the medical community does just that. So what do you think is the at the core of that. Yeah, I mean, I, I wish we could bottle whatever it is, right, that, <laughs> that drives people to, to help out in that way. But it, it is, what really struck me uh, writing about this epidemic was that sense of the importance of community of supporting each other. And that's something that, of course, we did see in COVID as well, of you know people really recognizing and supporting each mm-hmm. other. But I think it's also something that we're battling uh, against in terms of the fraying of that and, and the kind of shift towards a me culture instead of an us culture. And so I really enjoyed getting to write about and celebrate something that was really about everybody recognizing the need to pull together. You know, the government basically saying, spend whatever money you need, you know, to take care of these patients. And people coming down from Sweden and bringing Mm -hmm. beds and linens and sending nurses and people within the community in Denmark, obviously stepping up um, to to work in the hospital. People, nurses coming out of retirement to help. Um, I think it, it of course, doesn't hurt that... uh, Many of those impacted were, were children because I think that actually there is a tugging at the heartstrings, which always gets people <laughs> motivated um, when there's children involved. But um, but I think fundamentally it is just that recognition that sure. community matters and caring for each other matters. Yeah, and polio, like COVID, doesn't discriminate, right? Doesn't seem to matter. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, it's one of those diseases that terrified people because nobody ever fully understood who was going to be kind of the most afflicted by it. Mm-hmm. That uh, you had 100 people who might get exposed, only five would develop paralytic polio. 
but you never knew who those people would be. And then even amongst those, you never knew who was going to fully recover and who was going to be left with paralysis for the rest of their life, which would fundamentally change their life and and uh, their trajectory. Yes. Have you studied Judy Human much? Uh, I've, I've certainly come across her. I do mention her in the book um, because yeah. one of the things I learned was I hadn't appreciated how much polio um, was a driver of the disability rights movement, of course, because many of the early uh, proponents for disability rights were polio survivors, including Judy Human, who I know just died relatively recently. Incredibly important for recognizing that, you know, the, the right to lead a full life despite physical disability, incredibly important uh, what she fought mm-hmm. for. Yeah, thank you for that. I'm so glad that you do this work and that you've brought this to people's attention because you're right, the, just the ramifications and the ripple effect of these kinds of things have just cascaded beyond even anything that we can imagine, um, including work like hers and yours that you're, you know, educating and you're encouraging and you're, you're I think, also giving hope. Yeah, well, I don't think I could have written a book that didn't have those things in it and that I couldn't have spent that many years sort of grappling with a, a story that ended in disaster or tragedy uh, that I need I need that hope and I you know working in the intensive care unit and for those who work in healthcare you do need that hope you know there's a lot of suffering and death that is part and parcel of the day-to-day work and uh, and so we need to focus on the things that are positives that provide hope um, again that's sort of why I go back to the fact that I think that we need to support healthcare workers in terms of giving them time away also from caring for patients. Um, and, uh, and I do want to mention as well, I talked about all the positives that came for the medical students who were involved. They also did struggle. Uh, and I talk about this in the book that when they did go back to their studies after this epidemic was over, um, some of them found it hard. They had, you know, what I think we would probably describe now as PTSD or anxiety, depression, all, you know, all the things that a lot of healthcare workers are struggling with now. Um, I think the one thing we're maybe a little better at now is that back then they kind of didn't know how to put voice to it. And there wasn't a lot of in, in place to support to help them. There weren't conversations being had about it. I think that we have improved a lot in terms of recognizing that when people have been through traumatic events, that it's important to debrief and check in with people and actually back to community, right? Just to support each other and also to provide professional support. Um, And so I'm a huge advocate for that now. Um, And it's sort of, in a way, reassuring to know that these things were things people were struggling with 70 years ago too. (laughs) But but, uh, also, you know, encouraging that I think we have improved in the care that we can give to healthcare workers who need Mm, it. So important. And as you're saying with this historical reference, uh, to think, what have we learned from history? What can we do better? And what I'm hearing you say is giving people space, encouraging rest, um, giving them an opportunity to express how they're feeling, what they're thinking about, how this has affected them, and the, you know, giving them that support and potentially resources and however, whatever they need to help them. Absolutely. I think that, you know, we need to protect our community and support our community of healthcare workers and really everybody who's been through through COVID-19 and any kind of stressors in their life. That's not, uh, mm-hmm. not unique to healthcare workers. So a couple of recap uh, takeaway tips. You know, we always think about how, you know, we might not 
be able to make the kind of impact that you're making in the medical field and those impacted, but we can take away some of the lessons learned from your experience and what you've shared with us today. So one of the things that I've written here is to the willingness to hear others' opinions, you know, like, like the hero in your story and, and like the many examples I'm sure in our own lives is just like, you know, whose voice isn't being heard and how can we help amplify that and the courage to speak up. So it's like the willingness to hear it, but then there's also the willingness to say something. So when you're, when you have those pangs, like you did to write this book and to do the kind of work you do, um, when you have an idea, when something doesn't seem quite right, you know, have the courage to say something about that. And then really the importance of community. I think that's all over everything that you've discussed here and, and that compassionate community, like the one that cares about each other. And then really that very practical advice to check in with people. You know, if somebody seems a little off or you know that somebody's going through a really tough time for whatever reason, just to check in with them, let them know you're thinking of them. Is there anything else you would add to that, Hannah? No, I think that's a fantastic list. Um, and, uh, you know, I do think that I, I use this book to make the point that, you know, equity, diversity, inclusion is so important. It's sort of front and center in this book in terms of that recognition that you need diversity of opinions and that that was a crucial piece to this crucial intervention that has changed modern medical care. Absolutely. Oh, well, thank you for writing this book and for sharing your precious time with us. I so appreciate you, Hannah. Oh, well, thank you so much. And thank you for all you do to help all of us in the modern world. Thanks for listening to ROG, Return on Generosity podcast. Please help us grow by subscribing and reviewing us on your favorite podcast player. And for more information, visit bridgebetween.com. We grow when we give. We grow when we give. We grow when we give.